What are you here for? I don't mean just this morning, but why are you here on planet Earth? The catechism asks, what is the chief end? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is wonderful. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yes, amen, absolutely. But what does that mean? What does that look like on the daily? Well, today we come to our third and final sermon in a series we've called Identity. We looked at who we are, who we are to become last week, and today we look at what we are to do. We saw first week that our identity is not to be found in us, contrary to the voices of media, but actually it's found in Christ. And we looked at the glorious doctrine of imputation, the fact that our sins are imputed to Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness is counted as ours. Through faith we are righteous. And then last week we looked at who we are to become increasingly like Jesus, conformed to the image of Jesus. We saw from Ephesians 4 that happens through this constant putting off of the old self, renewing of the mind by God's truth, and a putting on of the new self. So we're forgiven, but now we pursue holiness. We seek personal transformation. But God's call on our lives doesn't stop there. We're not merely to form holy huddles. Holy huddles of introspective saints. No, we've got work to do. God's left us here with a mission and a ministry. And one of our core values as a church is that we are committed to missional living. In other words, living on mission. It's just the adjectival form of mission, missional. We're on mission. We're to have this outward focus. So what are we to do? Well, we're to fundamentally be outward. But before we look, I want us to zoom out a little bit and ask. So I'm asking what are we to do, but I want us to think about what is God doing? I think it's helpful often to zoom out. We can get lost in the day-to-day and the details and the grind and forget kind of the big picture of world history. What in the world is God doing? In other words, what's the whole message of the Bible? Or we could ask it this way, what is the purpose of all of history? Well, I can't quite simplify that into one sentence, but I've tried in ten. Ten sentences. What in the world is God doing? We'll put these up, but I'll post these on our Facebook page tomorrow, so don't try to get them. Here's what I want. I just want you to zoom out. So I think we've got slides. Ten propositions on what in the world God is doing. Here's my best effort. Number one, God created the world and humans to know him, represent him, and rule on his behalf. Number two, humanity preferred their own rule to God's rule, and the result was death and destruction, the image of God now marred. Number three, God formed a people to be a royal priesthood and promised a forever king for everyone. Number four. Number three was most of the Old Testament. (laughs) Number four. God sent the Savior King to restore his rule on earth as in heaven. Number five. Jesus lived a perfect life died a substitutionary death on the cross, was raised from the dead, and was enthroned at God's right hand as king of the world. Number six, he then launched a spirit-filled community of ambassadors to bear witness to his rule in all of life. Number seven, those who reject Jesus will face judgment, and those who accept him are forgiven of their sins and indwelt by the Spirit. Number eight, now those who submit to King Jesus through faith and repentance are being transformed into his likeness, the image of God restored. Number nine, our purpose then is to know him, represent him, and expand his rule and help others do the same. 
Number 10, Christ will return and consummate his kingdom, raising his people from the dead and renewing this world that we might live and reign with him for all eternity. That's what God is doing in the world. I think we need to see that big picture of scripture, indeed of history, to act rightly. Goals determine present day action. Here's the way one popular philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, says it. He said, if we want to know what to do, we've got to understand the story to which we belong. The larger narrative informs the smaller choices, and we've got a big book. But God is taking back his world. He's bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and he uses us to do that. So here's the main point this morning. Your purpose, what are you to do? Your purpose in life is to glorify God. The catechism gets it right. By knowing God, representing God, and expanding the rule of God as royal priests. So turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you're not already there. It's page 954 if you're borrowing one of our Bibles there in the chairs. Just one verse, and I really just want to focus on one phrase in the verse. Let me read it again. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what are we to do? Where are we to be a royal priesthood? You are royal priest if you're a Christian. That's what the church is. King priests. Revelation 1 says the same thing. Revelation 5 says the same thing. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a royal priest? It's a big question. It's actually a whole Bible question. We've got to go back to the beginning. Adam was actually the first royal priest. Why do I say that? Well, several reasons. Garden of Eden is presented there in Genesis 1 as a garden temple. Eden wasn't just some piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but it was a sanctuary where God dwelled and where people were to worship him. In Eden, like later temples, they were to be entered from the east. They were both guarded by cherubim. The tabernacle later, so the tabernacle came later before the temple, the lampstand symbolized the tree of life, which is in the garden. Gold and onyx are in Eden, and later they're used to decorate later temples, later priestly garments. I could go on and on. There's all kinds of illusions that show us that Eden was actually the first sanctuary, the first temple. It was a garden temple. And Adam's called to work and keep the garden temple. And these two verbs in the Hebrew Bible, work and keep, they're only used together right there in Genesis chapter 2.15 and later with the work of the priests. So in the whole Hebrew Bible, who is working and keeping? Well, priests and Adam, who was the first royal priest. Listen to the way Exodus 19 puts it much later in the story of Scripture as he's forming his people. He tells them, that they shall be to him a kingdom of priests. So the whole nation is going to be a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. A corporate Adam in that sense. They were to know God, they were to represent God by obeying the law, and they were to rule on his behalf. So the whole nation was to be a royal priesthood, the whole nation of Israel. Well, fast forward to where we're at in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter is basically quoting Exodus, speaking to the church. Here now the church, the, the new Israel, is to be a community of royal priests. What then do royal priests do? What are we to do? Well, ministry and mission. 
speak the word of the king and expand the rule of the king. And so let's consider those two. First, the priestly element, ministry, and then the royal element, mission. So you're a priest, believe it or not, right? We are Protestant. We were products of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was one of the main uh, reformers to teach this new idea that there's not some special class of priests that have some special access to God. No, he called it the priesthood of all believers. If you're a Christian, you are a priest. The Roman Catholic system of some celibate, set-apart priests who have special access that we must go through to get to God, it's foreign to the New Testament. In the New Testament... We all have access to God through faith in Christ. Remember, the curtain was torn, and it was torn from top to bottom. And so now we all know God. We all have access to God if we've trusted in Christ. And we're all called to make him known. All of us are called to minister. If you're a Christian, you trust Christ, you obey him in baptism. Your baptism is your commission to ministry. Now, each one will look differently, and it may not be vocational, But to be a Christian is to be a priest, is to be called to the ministry. In the Old Covenant, before Jesus came, ministry was only for the few, wasn't it? It only took place at a special place, right? The tabernacle or the temple. Special priests did special ministry at the special place, the temple. But that's all over now. In fact, the temple is no more. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, just like Jesus prophesied that it would be. There's no physical temple anymore. Now, in fact, the New Testament teaches, what is the temple? You are. The church is the temple. That's why we probably shouldn't call this building a sanctuary, because at the end of the day, there's nothing holy about the building. You know who the sanctuary is? You are. It becomes holy as we gather right here. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Speaking to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, We, church in Corinth, are the temple of the living God. So we are the temple now where God's presence is, where the spirit dwells. And then in a wonderfully mixed metaphor, we're the temple and the priests who build and sanctify the temple. If you're open to 1 Peter 2, look at verse 5. How he describes the church. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, a weird metaphor in itself, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the temple. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the temple. We are the priests who offer spiritual sacrifices. Listen to the way the book of Ephesians puts it. Speaking of the church. Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, there it is. The church is the temple now. Not only that, the church is the priesthood, the royal priesthood who work in the temple. We are priests and we are temple builders, Ephesians 2. So now it's the church. That's where ministry is to take place in the new temple. 
Not in the old temple like the priest, but now every Christian's a priest and the church is the temple. So the church is where the ministry takes place. And every Christian's called to this ministry. Every member ministry. Again, you trusted in Christ, you're called to ministry. It's no longer the ministry of the select few, but of every pew, so to speak. So you're called to ministry as a priest, but what does that look like? Well, we could say a lot. We could say a lot, especially as Peter says, Romans 12 says, about offering spiritual sacrifices with our whole life. But I want to focus in on two. As priests, we sanctify the house of God and we speak the word of God. Every member is called to sanctify the house of God and speak the word of God. So priests sanctify the house of God. Again, Genesis 2.15, Adam was called to guard and keep the garden temple. Now, how'd he do? Failed, right? Instead of beheading the snake, he lets the snake come in and lead his wife, who then leads him, and death and destruction are the results. He failed, but we're called now. We have the Spirit of God, and we're called to sanctify God's house now, which is the church. In other words, one of your jobs, Christians, specifically members of Southside Baptist Church, is to keep the house pure. You're called to that. In other words, keep the church pure. In other words, we practice meaningful church membership and we practice church discipline. We've been there recently, Matthew 16 and 18. Jesus gave the keys to his house to the gathered congregation. And so we speak about membership as a job Jesus gave you. As a priest king, this is part of your job. It's an office so again, real practically tonight, if you're a member of Southside, come tonight. We've got a members meeting where we'll hear the testimonies of potential new members and you will affirm their profession of faith. Do they understand the gospel? Do they have a credible, credible testimony? And if a member leaves the faith or repeatedly chooses sin over the Lord Jesus, Jesus calls you to sanctify the house, to remove them from the fellowship, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 5, to keep the house pure. Right? Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, cleanse out the old leaven. Purge the evil from among you, 1 Corinthians 5. Let me read the way 2 Corinthians 6 speaks about our job to keep the house pure. I realize what I'm speaking sadly is foreign to church life today, but clearly rooted in Scripture. Listen to these contrasts in terms of our job to keep the house pure, 2 Corinthians 6.14 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, we talk a lot about this verse with dating. It definitely applies, but it's more than that. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what position does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And here he quotes a ton of passages about the new temple, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We're called to be different. There should be a really sharp line between the church and the world. 
specifically with our members. Maybe you're an unbeliever. We actually want you here at this gathering, but you can't join the church unless you have faith in Christ. There has to be a, a sharp, clear line between the unbelieving world and the believing world. And one of the calls of you as a royal priest is to keep that line sharp, not to lower it, but to keep it high. Priests keep the temple pure. They sanctify the house of God. Second, priests prayerfully speak the word of God. The main instrument the Spirit uses to build up the church, to build the temple, is the word of God. The word of God creates and sustains the people of God. It creates and grows the temple. The word is powerful. Why? Because the word of God is just an extension of God himself. By it, he spoke the world into existence. By it, he summons Abram out of Ur and creates a people. By it, he creates life from the dead bones in Ezekiel 37. By it, faith comes. Romans 10, faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word. By it, he upholds the universe. Hebrews 1.3, by the word of his power. By it, we are sanctified. Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. By it, 1 Peter 2, 2, we grow spiritually. God works through his word, and every Christian is called to this priestly ministry of the word. Speaking the word prayerfully to one another. There are 25 instances in the New Testament of members. I'm not talking about church leaders, not church elders, not pastors. Christians. Speaking the word to one another 25 times in the New Testament. So if you're a Christian, you're a priest. If you're a priest, then you're called to prayerfully speak the word to one another. Flip over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians is really about how God's putting all things together under Christ the King. First three chapters are about the creation of the new humanity. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about the conduct of the new humanity. How are we, that's what we're asking. What are we to do? Well, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians are largely about what we are to do. And one thing we're going to see that's just an emphasis in these chapters is how we use our words. We're to use our words to build up. We're to prayerfully speak the word to one another. I'm going to show you. Just look at chapter 4, verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So notice, he's speaking to the church and he says, grace is given to each one of us. So again, we're talking about every one of you. Then he talks about how Jesus was ascended. He has all authority. And then look at verse 11. Jesus is ascended. And what does he do in his ascension? He gives gifts to the church. He doesn't leave us on our own. Apostles, prophets, those are foundational gifts. We'll learn more about this weekend at Abilene Theology Conference, they're no longer a valid office. We don't need them. They were foundational, but now we do have evangelists, those who go and get the word out. Shepherds and teachers, there's only one definite article. It's one office, shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. Why did Jesus give pastor teachers? Verse 12, to do all the ministry? <clears throat> to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a lot of words. It just means that we might mature, that we might grow in Christ's likeness. Verse 14, with the goal here, so that we may no longer be 
children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And how is all that going to happen? How are we going to mature? Verse 15, speaking to you, a royal priest, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when and only when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What are you to do? Prayerfully speak the word to one another that the temple might grow might be matured, that the body might be edified, might be built up. You are a temple builder. How do you build the temple? Prayerfully speaking the truth in love. And then he gives us tons of examples of how we're to have this sanctified speech. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Now we have honest speech. Royal priests don't lie. Look at verse 29. How are we to use our words? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I wonder even as you come into this gathering, is this on your mind? How can I come in and prayerfully speak the word to one another and build up this temple as a royal priest? But that's not all. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. How are we to use our words as royal priests? Look at verse 18 of chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives us how that looks. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms. And hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. So how do we use our words? As royal priests, part of your ministry is to come in here and sing loudly. One, for the Lord, because the Lord deserves it. But notice what he says in verse 18. This is one of the reasons we sing songs that are singable. It's one of the reasons we leave the lights on. It's one of the reasons we raise the blinds is because singing is first and foremost an encouragement to the body, a congregational act. That's why he mentions it right there, verse 18, excuse me, verse 19. When we sing, we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But it's not only one another, it is also to the Lord, making melody to the Lord. We come together, do we sing just my, you know, my concert, me and Jesus here alone? No. Yes, we do sing to the Lord, absolutely, but we're also at the very same time instructing and encouraging one another. And y'all do this so well. One of the highlights of my week is hearing you praise the Lord. And that's exactly what you're intended to do as royal priests. One of the ways you prayerfully speak the word to one another is by singing to one another while we're making melody to the Lord. Then it goes into the home. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers in particular, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that word goes from the pulpit in this case, but also Sunday school classes and all kinds of other ways, and it enters your conversation and the everyday talk and ultimately to the home where even fathers bring that word to bear, the instruction of the Lord when it comes to parenting their kids. This is all 
your job as a royal priest. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1. This morning, Steve Harrell reminded us a good, easy way to memorize these. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat pork chops. Because so much of the message of these letters is the fact that we're not under the law anymore. And so things like pork is no longer unclean. Colossians chapter 1. This is Paul focusing on his ministry of the word. This is apostolic word work. Look at Colossians 1.28. What are we to do? As royal priests, we speak the word to one another. Paul says him, he's speaking of Jesus, Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone. Let's stop there. We don't hear a lot of that from pulpits anymore. It's hard to be warned. But here's part of the call of the pastor is to warn. In other words, is to get in your grill a little bit. Warning. Everyone and teaching. So true preaching needs to be full of teaching. Him, Jesus, we proclaim. He's our content. How do we do it? We warn everyone. We teach everyone with all wisdom. Here's the goal that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal of the proclamation. Preach Jesus, warn everyone, teach everyone with all wisdom, with the goal of maturity, Christ likeness, spiritual growth. What are we to do? Grow. And spiritual maturity. How does it happen? Christ-centered preaching that's filled with warning and filled with teaching. So that's just the Apostle Paul. Okay, fair enough. Flip over a page to chapter 3. Two kinds of word work here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Very similar to what we just saw in Ephesians 5. Local church at Colossae, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. There's that word, so we proclaim Christ in chapter 1, Paul proclaimed Christ, but now you let that same content, the word of Christ, the word about Christ, dwell in you richly. Notice the same verbs here, teaching and warning, teaching and warning, teaching and warning one another in all, same word, wisdom. You see the parallels? Apostolic ministry, preach Christ, warn, teach with all wisdom. Every member ministry, royal priest, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. Warning, teaching with all wisdom. Two different kinds of word work. And then he mentions again, there in the middle of verse 16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Two kinds of word work. Apostolic proclamation, in some ways that's what I'm doing here. I'm no apostle. But in some ways, here I am proclaiming Christ, warning and teaching, equipping the saints so that you might do the work. But notice then you're called to let that same word dwell in you richly. And you're to speak it to one another prayerfully and with all wisdom. Two different kinds of word work. In many ways, what I or your Sunday school teacher or whoever it may be, what I'm doing here in one type of form, the church is called to do to one another in a different kind of form. Every day, spirit-filled, wisdom-centered Word work. You're a royal priest called to sanctify the house of God and speak the word of God prayerfully. Jonathan Lehman has a book, former book, to change the title, probably rightly. The former book was called Reverberation. And I love that word actually because what should happen here is that this preached word should go forth and then should reverberate. 
between one another right here after this service and between one another at lunch and then at home and family worship and, and in your own life. That word goes forth and reverberates all throughout the congregation. Here's how Tim Lane puts it. He says, the ministry of the word doesn't, does not stop with the preaching. It continues throughout the church. The discipling ministry, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the missions work, the worship ministry, the friendships and families. All of this operates on the same page by being word-oriented and Christ-centered. Elders and deacons are taking the, work into their, the word into their work. Parents are learning to bring the gospel and how they train their kids. Husbands and wives are thinking about the centrality of the gospel as they relate to one another. And the list goes on and on and on. You're called to this word work. Romans 15, 14 says, you are church. Rome, at Church at Rome. That's us now. You are competent to counsel the word. You are able to instruct one another. And we won't, won't reach maturity until we're all doing it. Listen to the way the book of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews is filled with warnings, as you know, about falling away. Don't fall away, don't fall away, don't fall away. Stay close to Christ. And notice the part God has given you toward that end. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, there's the warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's the warning. We have to feel that. Every one of us is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's why this warning is here. And then the very next verse, he tells us how. Okay, how can we not fall away? How can we finish well? Verse 13, church. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There it is. What is in this verse, what is the way that we can finish well? And isn't that our goal? To die well, that's the goal. That's my goal as a pastor. Help this people die well. Help this people die with the praises of Christ on their lips. What is one of the means that it takes to get there? Is every member exhorting one another every day as long as it's called today. Everyday word work. What I would call this is meaningful church membership. Caring about one another's spiritual well-being. A faith family. Hebrews chapter 10 says much the same. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another. To love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about judgment day. How do we not fall away? Well, we gather together, and as we gather together, we encourage one another with the word. You're a royal priest. You're a priest with a ministry, keeping the house pure and speaking the word. The, this New Testament knows nothing. Of a passive laity. Your priest called to do ministry. And if you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't have a clue. I don't know the word well enough. 
How am I supposed to do this? Well, first is pray. Pray for opportunities. And two, get to know the word better. You got a plan? Are you in it? Get to know that word well so you'll have something to say. But third, use the sermon. I spend 30 hours a week trying to craft helpful sermons for you. Take that, take that work and use it throughout the week and use it in your home group. So many of you do. Use it with one another. Take people to lunch. Hey, what would you think about the sermon? I didn't realize we were called priests. I didn't know that Eden was a garden temple. What would you think about that? What does that mean for our lives? How can I pray for you to be a better royal priest? Use the sermon throughout the week as a conversation piece. We post the notes, the whole manuscript online every week. Go back and listen, read the manuscript, and use it during the week. I remember uh, Grace Oglesby telling us her testimony as she joined freshman last year at ACU. I don't see you, Grace. I was so encouraged by one of, uh, one of the ladies in our church would grab her, grab her. Hey, let's meet every Wednesday morning. I think it was Wednesdays. Let's meet every Wednesday morning and just talk about the sermon. How easy is that? You don't have to prepare anything. Just listen well on Sunday mornings, which I hope you're doing anyway. What do you think about it? How does it apply to your life? Ask them their testimony. Ask ways you can pray for others. Speak the word of the king. You're a priest. Second, you're a king. You're a king. You're a royal priesthood called to the mission of expanding the rule of the king. Turn to the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. If we're royal priests, we can learn from what the first royal priest was called to do. We call it the cultural mandate. I prefer to call it the first great commission. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All humans are made in the image of God and to be made in the image of God is to mirror and mimic God. It's to rule and represent Him. It's a representative rule. We could say it's to know Him, it's to represent Him, and it's to rule on His behalf. I like the way the message paraphrases this commission. Prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge. That's what they were called to do. And in the ancient Near East... Kings, secular kings, pagan kings would erect an image of themselves or maybe of one of the gods they would represent in a territory. For example, the Assyrian king represented the god Assur and after conquering new territory, erected an image of the god Assur. And so the idea is, as people come through, they realize, oh, there's Assur, this is Assyrian territory. It was a statement of ownership, of rule. They would see the image of that god and know that area is owned and ruled by that particular king and where does God put his image? Every single human being. God puts his image all over the world. And so every time you see a human being, you should think this is God's world. This is God's territory. He's the king. He has ownership. 
images reflected a greater reality. It's kind of like a flag. A posted flag represents rule and reign. God has planted his flags all over his world. So here mankind's made in the image of God, and he's commissioned here with a dominion mandate, a command to multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion on God's behalf. Eve is formed as a helper to that end, and they're both charged then to take charge for God. Here we have a divine delegation of authority to us to rule on his behalf. You know, often at Southside we say, make babies, make culture. And this is what we mean. Multiply and make culture. Cultivate the world with God's rule and God's way. That's why we call it the cultural mandate. See, the Garden of Eden here was different from the rest of the world. It was cultivated. The rest of the world was inhospitable at this point, and their calling was to expand the boundaries of that garden temple until the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. It was to make the whole world a temple, which ultimately it will be. It was a massive development project given to Adam and Eve right here. Eden was the ready-made. The rest of the world would be new construction for the kingdom of God. Of course, we know really quickly the next page they fell, right? Instead of expanding the boundaries, they get kicked out of the boundaries, don't they? So now we're all in that area. We're all east of Eden. Sin has tainted everything, but the first great commission still stands. This cultural mandate is the first command God gave us, and he didn't change his mind. He hasn't taken it back. If you're a human being, this is your job description. Know him, represent him, and rule on his behalf. It's the first great commission. What are we to do? We're to be kings. We're to expand his rule. But as you all know well, there's a second great commission. Listen to Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the Great Commission begins with the great announcement. You should never read the Great Commission without the great announcement. Never read Matthew 28, 19, and 20 without verse 18. And in verse 18, he's actually alluding back to the Old Testament. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've seen that how influential the book of Daniel is for the Gospel of Matthew. And here it is again, quoted in the great announcement that comes before the Great Commission. Let me read to you Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." kind of wish the English would translate a little more consistently because the word for dominion in Daniel is the very same word for authority in Matthew 28. Given to him in Daniel is the same form as given to me in Matthew 28. All authority given to me. To him was given, same verb, authority and a kingdom 
Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations, pontata ethne. Daniel said, all the nations, pontata ethne, will serve the enthroned Son of Man. Jesus is the exalted King, the ascended Lord. He has been given all authority. The Great Commission is not, go make disciples. It's therefore, go make disciples. Of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to obey everything the king said. I think in the church we've really shrunk the Great Commission. We've reduced the Great Commission. The call is not merely to go get a few decisions from a few people groups, but to make disciples of all the nations and to teach them to obey everything King Jesus commanded. The main verb is actually make disciples. I think we've got a little diagram. You remember sentence diagramming? Therefore, that's always got to be there, the main verb is make disciples. And then it's modified by three participles. Here's the Great Commission. Make disciples. Modified by the first participle, going. So wherever you go, this isn't merely a command to leave where you are. This, again, is a command for every Christian. Every disciple is called to the Great Commission. So as you go, while you are going, make disciples. And what's the first step of obedience to Jesus? It's baptizing. We go and we baptize, but do we stop at baptism? Heavens no, that's just the beginning. Next, we teach the nations everything that Jesus commanded. How do we know we're fulfilling the Great Commission? When all nations are obeying everything the King commanded. Well, we have work to do, don't we? But God promises victory. The Great Commission will be fulfilled, and He promises His presence. I will be with you. So do you see how these two Great Commissions are related? The first Great Commission and the second Great Commission? The king makes and remakes his image in his people that we might know him, represent him, and expand his rule throughout the earth. As we go, we teach the nations to submit to the rule of the king. We're still called to build Christian culture, to bring the rule of Christ, the commandments of the king to bear, first in our own personal lives, then in our family if we have one, then in our church, then in our work, and then our community, and then the nations. Whatever domain God has given us, we cultivate it with the rule of the king. Starting where we are and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, right? Acts 1, we bear witness to his reign. We bear witness to the risen and reigning Savior King in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Who are we? Counted righteous in Christ. Who are we to become? More and more like Christ. What are we to do? Operate as a royal priesthood, ruling on God's behalf and making the knowledge of God known throughout the earth. Church, you are a royal priesthood called to know Christ, represent Christ, and spread the rule of Christ wherever he sends you.